Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to the Fire in the Belly Show. Today we have myself, Mighty Pete, and we're joined by the Simon Hay. Good afternoon. Pete, how are you? It's great to see you. And uh, I'm not actually in California. I'm here in Dublin, but that's my backdrop. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, I mean, listen, it's, uh, Dublin's never looked so good from this angle, you know, but... <laughs> so tell us, Simon, who are you? What are you doing? Where are you from? So, so who am I? So I guess I'm referred to as the growth strategist uh, on social media. And really, you know, what I, what I do is, what I try to do is help leaders, organizations grow through four kind of prisms, uh, business growth, leadership growth, brand growth, and mindset growth. And I think increasingly my work is more around mindset. So helping a coach, mentor around assertiveness, influencing, resilience, all that kind of stuff. Um, where I'm from, um, I, I was born, well, I'm from an, an Anglo-Irish family, born in England. Um, but I've, I, I can't, it's, it's funny when somebody says, where are you from? That's where I was born. But I spent nearly all, um, as much of my life outside England now. I've lived in Ireland for 11 years, Australia in, uh, for 10 years. I lived in California for a bit. I lived in Central Europe. So, And I'm actually a citizen now of the UK, Ireland, and Australia. So it's funny when somebody says, where are you from? That's where my childhood was. Where my home is really is kind of where my tribe is. And we might talk about that. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me. <laughs> I was going to say, it normally comes down to, you know, time and money were no object. Where would you put your beach towel? You know, and, um, <laughs> uh, beach towel would be some, somebody hotter than here right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dublin's lovely, but no, it's like no. you want some sun on the bones when you go that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, that's that's a lot of passports, a lot of countries, a lot going on there. So, yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't think I've ever met anybody who has three. Well, I don't actually don't have an Irish passport. I'm an Irish citizen, but I, I haven't got around to getting the passport. But I have the Aussie passport. As I said, I grew up in in, in the UK. We moved to Australia in 2000, and I emigrated, first of all, in 99 with my wife, who's from Dublin. We lived here in Dublin for nearly seven years. Uh, and then we went to Perth, Australia. And after two years, we were, the, we were the last crew who could get citizenship after two years. I think it's about four or five years now. So I got a passport there. And then we moved back four years ago. So we've been back in Dublin four years, two months. And Ireland is my home. Um, I love it here for a whole load of reasons, mainly because my wife and two daughters, who are 21 and 22, live here. And I would count most of my best friends live in Dublin and Ireland. So, but it's funny, you know, home, it really is kind of where your heart, mind and soul feel most at ease. It's not, it's not a geographical place. It's where you feel aligned inside. I don't know whether you feel the same, Pete. It's that kind of self-alignment thing. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like, and I'm the same when someone says, where are you from? It's generally easy to say, where are you from? Cause I can probably relate to it in some, some shape yeah. or form, yeah. you know, there's that transient nature, but I mean, there is always some certain places that you just feel more grounded in too, I think, you know, as well. So it's just, yeah, for me, that's for that, for me, that's Dublin. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, it's Ireland, but I don't really know the rest of Ireland. You know, my wife is from Dublin. She's a typical Southside Dubliner. So she would never consider, 
you know, for her, leaving Dublin is like going somewhere else, you know. And uh, I mean, I love Cork. I love Galway. I love Sligo. I also love Belfast. I've, I've done some work up there with Queen's University. And um, I, you know, I love to drive from here up there as well. I feel it's funny, you know, when I go up to Belfast, I feel like I'm straddling two worlds, Ireland and the UK. And having come from the UK, I see a lot of, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief when I see Sainsbury's and, and all that English UK stuff up there, but it feels half and half to me, you know, and I'm, I'm not getting political. It just feels half and half. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's Sainsbury's and Dunn stores. It's sort of that perfect mix between the two. <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. there's a lot's going on. I know. So, so, I mean, I love that. I mean, you were talking there with your business side, you know, really you're talking about, you know, the, you know, the business, the branding, the leadership and the mindset. I mean, why you're saying mindset's the, the strongest part at the moment. Why is that? That's a good question. I mean, it's funny, you know, how all this started. Maybe I'll just give you a background on how it all started. About five years ago, I spent 22, 21 of my 28 years as a senior lawyer and as a C-suite, you know, I was a CEO of an American company in Australia. And then eight years ago, I took a payoff. I started my own coaching, consulting, mentoring business. And five years ago, somebody said, I had a bit of a kind of late midlife crisis. I was 48 at the time. And somebody, and I said, what do I do? And somebody said, you need to write a book. So I'm answering the question, but there's a, there's a journey here. You need to write a book. And so I wrote an ebook called Deal Making for Corporate Growth, which sounds very kind of austere. And, and looking back, it was kind of a very formal title. But to cut a long story short, um, that turned into a paperback a couple of years ago called How to Be a Better Deal Closer. And when I launched that book, so that was a summary of all the experience I've had helping organization close deals and doing business business deals and also my own companies, et cetera. But when I launched it, I, somebody said to me, a book publisher in the States said to me, her name was Catherine Hall. She's one of the publishers for Marshall Goldsmith, world's number one leadership thinker. And she said, and I'll never forget this. She said, when I looked to this book and read it, um, it was like the wardrobe in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know you know the wardrobe. You walk in, and you walk into this different land. And I wish I could claim that I said this, but she said this. And she said, when I read the book, it wasn't just a mundane book about deals and business. You were writing about all the key human attributes that we all need to navigate life, like resilience and assertiveness and influencing skills and networking skills and communica communication skills. And, um, and, and so... That, that really, and so, you know, I listened to her and I've been doing lots of training around deals and negotiation and sales, but nine times out of 10, when I train, people come back and say, that was great, but what I really need help with is my confidence. How do you help me build my confidence, build my resilience, all that sort of stuff. So it just naturally is coming more and more around those mindset growth skills, which for me, I love. And it's funny, you know, because I kind of hid behind that corporate clenched buttock kind of blue chip business deal-making version of me. That's not me. I, you know, I love working with people. And, you know, we were talking before about our own journey. I've been through my own crisis in life, which I'm happy to share about in a bit. And, and today, I, I'm just me. I just tell my story. And, you know, I'm somebody with a good CV who's had his own crisis. And I just want to help help other people and inspire. I'm not a philanthropist. I'm not a saint. But I've been through a journey and I love helping with some of that mindset stuff. So that was a long answer, but I wanted to just tell the story. 
No, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's I mean, it's a it's a heck of a journey too, really. You know what you've been yeah. through. So, before we really get into, it, I mean, let me just ask you: well, what is what does fire in the belly mean to you? Fire in the belly. That's a good question. Um, my answer to that is a year ago, right? Marshall Goldsmith, who's the world's number one leadership thinker, who I, I've been fortunate enough, he's kind of a mentor to me. Um, and he did the forward to two of my books. I spoke to him a year ago and I said, Marshall, I do all this great work and, and blah, 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 but I'm not really getting anywhere. I'm not getting followers. Nobody's really taking me seriously. And he said, he told me to what to do. And he told me to reach out and start podcasts, right? Funny enough. And, and I did that. And today I'm actually doing the work I love. I'm getting approached to do things. I've just been accoladed, Thinkers 360, all this sort of stuff. So to answer your question, fire in the belly for me is, and I talk about it in one of my programs, is matching your confidence with your capability, right? Doing what you love doing that just feels so normal. And, and that's the name of a program, how to match your confidence with your capability. So for me, it's about that alignment thing. You know, when, when, when you know what you're doing, you just love it. You live and breathe it. It doesn't feel like work. And other people can see, I can see it in you, that natural enthusiasm. You're not trying that for me is fire in the belly. It's your purpose in life. And you're not dragging your weight behind you. You're not pretending. You're not trying to act. You're just being you. And it's just a lovely feeling. That's what it, to me. And I feel strongly about that. Do you, I was going to say, do you, do you have fire in the belly? Definitely. Definitely. It's funny, you know, it's funny because I'm 53, right? And, and I, it, this might sound a bit draconian, but I say to people, you know, God willing, um, you know, I might be around on this planet for another 30 years if I'm lucky, you know, and and um, and I finally found my purpose in the last year or so, right? Because, you know, I could never, I was always dissatisfied with what I did, you know, and I changed careers, blah, blah, blah. And my purpose today is simple. I've got 30 years or so, hopefully to go. I want to learn as much as I can, right, around growth and business and leadership and mindset, distill it, pass that on. Yes, I want to make a bit of money when I do it, pass it on and, and, and inspire others to match their confidence with their capability. And I love it. I always wanted to be a coach and mentor. I could never do it. And yet now I'm doing it, you know, so that's my fire in my belly. And you're saying that's really in the, even just in the last year that's come to the fore with you. I mean, really just, I mean, it's been a journey. It kind of started with Marshall five years ago when I reached out to him to write the forward to my first book. Never thought he never thought he would ever respond. It's funny, you know, that fire in the belly thing, it's about pushing yourself. I, just to go back, you know, when I was, when somebody said, write that ebook, it was nearly six years ago. I wrote 50 pages. It flowed out of me. And then I then I had this notion in my head, which I think is kind of part of that fire in the belly thing. I thought to myself, well, nobody knows Simon, Simon Haig. I need to go on to LinkedIn and find somebody famous to write the forward, right? Maybe you call it delusional, Pete, right? Maybe you call it delusional, but I just call it opportunistic, right? So I went on to LinkedIn. I looked at people like Richard Branson, blah, blah, blah. And I came across this guy, Marshall Goldsmith, who I'd never heard of. And he's the world's number one leadership thinker. I connected with him. To my amazement, I asked him, would you write the forward to my book, right? Initially, I thought, I'm mad asking a total stranger, but he did. Like, he actually did. It took four months, and he did, right? And from that day to this, he's been like my guardian angel. And, um, you know, I'm just doing the stuff I love doing today. And, and it just goes to show that, you know, if you have a real – if you love what you're doing and you feel aligned with yourself, I often say to people – 
What's what's the problem with asking for help? Why don't you just ask? Because you know, if if you don't ask somebody, the answer is guaranteed one hundred percent no. If you do ask them, it's fifty percent chance yes. So ask them. So my life kind of took off five years ago, and then I've been through, I've been through counselling, I've been through therapy in my life for some of the things I've been through. So I went through another process there. I've been on a spiritual journey, but really, it's since doing the podcast a year ago, just a year ago. And I've been lucky, lucky to interview, you know, 40 of the world's leadership thinkers um, that it's kind of taken off. And, and I think for the first time in my life at 52, I'm 53 now, I do feel aligned. I don't feel like I, I, I'm just thinking this now for the first time in my life. I actually don't feel as though I'm I was always looking for something else. Right. I'm not. I'm actually doing what I want to do. It's a miracle. <laughs> I mean that's that, that's kind of a there's a lot of serenity to that, and even as you speak, you know, you kind of get a, a lot of calmness to go with that. Ah, uh, serenity is a good word, you know, and um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's about that. It's about self acceptance, and it's about um, it's about self alignment, and it's about it's about realizing that you know th- this is our goal, right? Like we have this one chance on this planet. I mean, if you're a Buddhist or whatever your faith is, you might think we have multiple chances. But for me, I think this is this is it. And you know, I often say, and I'm in a spiritual program. I don't mind saying that I, you know, I gave up alcohol 11 years ago, and I'm in a I'm in a program there that really has just been an amazing part of my life. You know, and it's a program around honesty and um, serenity we often use what's called the serenity prayer, you know, and the serenity prayer says, and, and I think everybody should think in these terms, and it's simple. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the hardest thing for most people is understanding the difference between what we can and can't change. And I think to your to your point there, I kind of – I'm I'm a human, so I still screw up, right? And I still have bad days and I still have anxieties. But generally today, I only focus on the things I can can control and I don't worry about the things I can't control. And that's taken huge pressure off. Somebody who naturally, I've been an addictive character all my life around many things, probably primarily control. You know, I used to think that when I was flying, you know, I had senior roles in the past and I was terrified of flying that if I used to cling onto the seats in front, like cling on and I'd be sweating profusely. This senior hotshot executive, right, sweating profusely, fingers crossed. I used to think the plane wouldn't crash. That shows how mad our heads can get, right? It doesn't matter how intelligent you are. Our, our, our brains, our minds are, the, are our best allies, but they can be our most dangerous foes. So today I don't battle with that stuff. So I'm glad you used the word serenity. That means a lot to me. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just it's the it's the aura you're giving off, really. I suppose. And talk to me about the addictive personality. I mean, do you know where that comes from for you? Um, well, I mean, you could say it's genetic. I mean, my mother, my mother, um, you know, had issues with alcohol, and you know, there's a whole history of it in the family. But I don't blame other people, right? I mean, I think for me. I do think a lot of it goes back to childhood, right? Nobody chooses um, addictive character. Nobody chooses to grow up fearful or anxious. And, you know, I talk about this when I train or a coach. I talk about what resilience is, and it's, an, it's, our compassionate, it's our capacity to cope with life. And then I say that, you know, humans are born resilient, right? As babies, we're resilient. And yet it, through childhood 
and conditioning and society and religion and politics and all these things and also what we observe in our parents crucially you know we are so we learn we learn to become anxious and fearful so i you know i picked up anxiety and fear in my family mainly in my family i grew up on the south of england so i you know geographically i was in an okay place but i witnessed a lot of stuff in my family so i picked up a lot of and absorbed a lot of fear and anxiety and i think addictive whatever that your addiction is right and i've had multiple workaholic controlaholic you know i you know i stopped drinking a while ago uh, i have to watch what i eat all these sort of things i mean a lot of us have these things for me that's a cloak for fear it just cloaks your fears those anxieties that you've developed mainly during so I, it goes back to childhood i think a lot of it goes back to childhood do you, do you see that you know voids you know your voids are your values up until the point that you actually accept yourself I've never heard it put that way, but um, yes. <laughs> so I, you know, I wouldn't be, I I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Right? I'm just talking at the present moment. I wouldn't be. I I would. I you know the, the old version of the capitalist version of me that who used to be a corporate lawyer would think, why would I waste my time talking to somebody I've ne- never met before about fire in the belly? This is all kind of mishy mushy, wishy washy stuff, and yet today. This is the only really important stuff, Pete. I mean, yes, we've got to do financial stuff. Yes, we, you know, business need managing, but it's all about people. And, you know, and I've, you know, I've, as I said, I'm not a saint, right? And I still have to earn a crust and I still get angry sometimes, still get resentful sometimes, still get fearful, but I do, but I love interacting with humans, right? I mean, it's all about, and it's funny, you know, like I used to think, that it was all about me. And, and there are people who think, you know, it's all about them, but we're actually on this planet. As, as I get older, the more I realize we're actually on this planet for each other. We can't do anything by ourselves. We just can't. So, um, so I've learned all that in the void and the void has been kind of, and it hasn't been quick. Like this has been, well, it's been a 15 year journey. It was 2005. I had a moment when I thought I need to, I need to sort my life out on many levels, you know, about identity and about the work I do and, and what I consume and all this. So it's been 15 years and it'll be another 15 years and, and hopefully longer. <laughs> it's amazing the things you learn through the process, isn't it? You know, and that, and how your needs, wants and values change through your careers, whether that be age, whether that be, you know, you step into the, as you say, the, the sort of the, the world of the corporate world and it's bigger, better, flashier, whatever. And that's the appearance. And that's, you know, of course we're going to spend that, do that and whatever. Whereas now you kind of go, okay. Yeah, no, I agree. It's it's funny, you know. I mean, you, you, don't get me wrong. I like to have a nice iPhone. I like to, you know, my car's okay. And I like, you know, I, I'm just moving into a new house with my wife and we're choosing fridge and television, all that stuff. And I, I like looking at nice things, but but I don't feel obsessed by it, right? And I don't feel put it this way, you know, I used to, it's funny, you know, and I'm watching myself in this. I have a guy who helps me with my social media stuff. And and he said to me about two years, I used to say to him, I'm doing all this work, but I'm not getting noticed. I'm not getting followers and all this sort of stuff. And he said, Simon, it's like you're at the end of a long avenue, right? You're And you're watching all these global thought leaders and you're at the end of the avenue and the gates close and the front doors close and you're looking from the outside. And it was funny, just before Christmas this year, he said to me, 
um, because things have changed and things have improved. And, you know, I'm doing a lot better in a lot of respects from a career perspective. And he said, Simon, and he volunteered this. I didn't, he just remembered that conversation. He said, Simon, remember we had that chat, the gates open, you're, you're at the end of the drive and the front door's open now. And, and, and I've reflected on that. And it's, and I, I, when I coach people, I actually talk now about this thing alignment, right? So I spent all my life trying to achieve these things, right? And pushing too hard. And today I just, I, I just do what I do, right? And if that offends people, I can't control them. I operate at a slower pace and it just, it's a cliche. People used to say in the past, they used to hear them, if you slow down, you'll achieve more. If you just allow yourself to align, blah, and I used to think that was wishy-washy stuff. It is 100% true, Pete. If you slow down, you achieve more. If you, if you stop striving and attach, it's a bit Buddhist, if you stop striving and attaching, you'll be amazed at what unfolds. And I was a slow learner. It took me over a decade to accept that, but it's happening. So that would be my main message to anybody out there is just accept who you are, right? There is no better version of you. There's no better version of Pete Lonton on planet Earth. There's seven and a half billion people, right? There's no better version. There might be somebody who's smarter or better looking or faster at running, but their attributes, that's separate to you as a human, mm -hmm. right? And I, that's the message I want to get across. Stop striving to be better as a human. You're the best version. Yes, you can study harder, and yes, you can practice harder or work out harder, but they're separate to who you are. That's really important. And I'm 53. I'm only just getting that. It's amazing, but I mean, it's beautiful even to get that because I kind of get the feeling that not everyone gets to that point in their life, unfortunately. Um, I agree with you. I agree, and it, it is sad. And it's funny, you know, this... I mean, this was nearly a year, God forbid, of pandemic. Uh, and I, what I say, I'm, I'm not saying about what I'm, what I'm about to say. I'm not gloating. I'm not uh, in any way, right? But but the program, the program that I've been on has really prepared me for this, right? And and I do, and 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 people who do, are in spiritual programs or programs of reflection or honesty or whatever it is, they do seem to be coping better with this, and yet. You know, I know, you know, and a lot of men in particular who haven't been on a program, who have been so hung up about their career and ego and image, uh, and yet the sands have been shifting below them for the last year, I think are really struggling. And my heart goes out to them in a genuine, I'm not being sycophantic, I'm being genuine, because I think a lot of people just don't have the tools that I've picked up through adversity through life, you know. So I wish everybody the best, because it's not easy. It's not easy. Yeah, I mean, there's so much reflection. Take us right back. Talk to us about Mini Simon. Mini Simon. Mm. So, so Mini Simon grew up on the south coast of England, and it's funny, you know. Uh, my, as far as I can remember back, there was always kind of a bit of conflict in the family, right? So, my 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 mum is English from and the Yorkshire London family. And my dad's mother is Irish or was Irish. And there was always conflict. And I don't need to go into the detail there, but there was always conflict between both parts of the family. And I remember it right back as far as I can remember, you know. And so there was always conflict about religion and all sorts of stuff going on in the family. And as a kid, I picked that stuff up. The other thing that I, you know, I rarely talk about is that it was my Irish grandmother. She was from Tipperary. She left there when she was a teenager and moved to, moved to England. She paid for my brother and I to go to private school in England. She, 
out of her own pocket, you know, and I didn't realize that until years later. She was a hard worker. She was a manual laborer, right? She moved to England. She was a cook in on building sites for big companies and she paid for us. My parents, uh, you know, I found out later didn't, didn't have the money. And so I was lucky. I went to a private Catholic uh, convent school in the South coast of England. And, and the reason I raised it, I, the, I remember the nuns, right? And I remember being terrified and to this day, I still have this thing about nuns, and I don't mean to be libelous or blasphemous because there's some beautiful, lovely nuns, and there were some at the school, but but the regime was quite strict, you know. And um, and I so I remember that, and so put those two together, family and and convent school. From the age of six, Minnie Simon had all sorts of hang-ups and phobias. I remember at the age of well, seven. I remember I had this phobia that I couldn't swallow. Right, I'd be in bed at night, and I would. I would, and occasionally it comes back to me. I would, I wouldn't be able to catch my breath, and then I would focus on it, and I would like obsess about it, and my my swallow rather. And so, from a very early age, whether I had you know alcoholism or whatever you want to call it at an early age, I had an ism at a very early age, right? And very self conscious, very shy, um, very lacking in confidence. But I suppose the flip side is I I I do remember, and this is kind of. St- stood me in good stead today. I had a very, and I often talk to people when I coach them, I had an extremely acute sense of awareness, which I sense that you have as well. I can tell it, you know, um, we've never met, but I can see it in the way you're communicating uh, an awareness of what's happening around me, right? I could read a room quite well, you know, and as a kid, I used to think I was a bit odd, right? But today it's very, very beneficial, right? And so I think Minnie Simon was quite a troubled soul, and I went through a lot of lot of other stuff during teenage years and early adulthood. But but it's funny, you know. You talked about the void and leading to validity. I would I wanted it easier when I was younger. Yes, but I wouldn't be as as I suppose I wouldn't be as resilient and I wouldn't be as sympathetic in a non in a genuine way today if I hadn't been through that stuff. And I rarely share that stuff. So that was a great question. <laughs> no, thank you. I mean, just question: Do you know your what's your earliest conscious memory? My earliest conscious memory is my fourth birthday. I don't know whether that's young or old. I've heard some people say they can remember three, but I remember my fourth birthday, sitting at the kitchen table in the house in Bognor Regis, West Sussex, south of England, and it was my birthday party and. I always had an eye for the girls. And so Vicky Lord was sitting next to me. <laughs> I just probably shouldn't mention any names. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, she's my girlfriend. And I was four and she wasn't my girlfriend. So, yeah, that was my earliest memory, my fourth birthday party of Vicky Lord. <laughs> it's always, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? The, the, what, what the memory sort of catches a hold of and brings up. Yeah. What um, a curiosity. Do you, have you been here before, do you think? I don't know, but I, I tell you, I tell you, like, I'm, I, that's a good question. I don't know, but I definitely am open-minded about afterlife and stuff like that. And I'll tell you, I mean, I won't go into some of the hocus, hocus stuff that we've experienced in our house, but I'll give you one example of how strange all this stuff is. I told you my Irish grandmother, Ellen Tracy, left Tipperary in her teens, lived in England for 60-odd years, hated England to the day she died, but she lived there for 60 years, you know. And 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 when I wrote, I wrote my the first book I wrote was 2001, and I was a, a solicitor in Dublin at the time, and I was lucky to have McCann Fitzgerald, one of the big five firms, allow me to write it. And it was a law book, right? And it was released in Ireland. 
Um, it was the first book around contract law and e-commerce and all that stuff. And you know, when you write a book, right, at the last minute they ask you to put a forward in it, you know, who you thank for, you know, I thank my wife for her wisdom, fortitude and parent and patience. That's what I wrote and all other people. And at the last minute, I forgot my Irish grand and I put a name in it and I said, thank you. Thank you to Ellen Tracy, you know, as, as a way of thanking her because I wouldn't have got there without her paying for the early days. Anyway, so the book was launched, right? And so she came from a tiny village in Tipperary called Borosili, just near Thurlis, right? That's where she came from. She left there at 16, um, big family. And uh, the book was launched. We had a big launch party at McCaffrey Sherald. The book sold a couple of thousand copies, which is a bestseller for a law book. Guess who was the first solicitor in the whole country to buy that? But guess which village in Ireland he was from? Boris Ali, right? How many villages? You, you are, I mean, I'll ask you this. How many villages are there on the island of Ireland? Thousands. One solicitor from the village of Boris Ali, right? Is that coincidence? I mean, I, I wouldn't have got an education without her. And she left Boris Ali when she was 16. So I do think that there are spirits watching over us. And I do think that we shouldn't mess with this stuff as well. You know, we should take it positively. And so that would be my answer. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, yeah, I, I get that. I do. It's, um, I mean, has this always been the case? Or is this this sort of world and this sort of question mark? Is this a more recent sort of uh, awareness for you? Uh, no, I mean, like I've, I've kind of been a little bit aware about this sort of stuff. I remember when I was at school doing my A-levels, I experienced some, some kind of supernaturalist type stuff that I just thought was very odd. You know, you know, dog in a church on the South Downs growling at a wall with nothing was going on. And, you know, a couple of strange things happening in the house. Um, it's actually recently though, the last five years, and I don't, you know, I don't want to say too much about it, but, but, you know, I think there's kind of evidence that, um, that you know, some stuff's been happening in the house we've lived in, and it's all lovely and positive stuff. But you know, I I think, for example, my wife's mother is you know probably sending messages as well of support. You know, and um, so I think just to answer your question, I, I've always been open-minded about this stuff. And the program that I'm in talks about three key words: willingness, open-mindedness, and honesty. I think I'm just noticing it more, Pete. You know, I I think I walk through life, and I think back to what you were saying before, a lot of people don't have that awakening. Uh, for me, I, it's funny, you know, I don't remember a lot of my teens and twenties cause I was just, I was going through a lot of anxiety and fear and self. I was self obsessed as well with career and me and coping. And it was all fear-based that I, I missed a lot of life. I missed cues. Right. And yet today I just feel like I'm more present. So I'm also more open-minded. So hopefully that answers i'm just more present and and for me it's not just about the dollar and 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 possessions you know i'm sitting here in dublin right i'm looking out the window to my left uh and the trees swaying right now i i, I never i was brought up a catholic in the south coast of england but i i never felt religious right in fact i went to a priest when i was 18 because I saw lots of bigotry and stuff. And I went to a priest in London, in Highbury, because I'm an Arsenal fan. I went to a priest in Highbury at the age of 18, a, a typical rebellious teenager. And I went in and said, I want to renounce Christianity. And he said, he must have thought I was an idiot. And he literally cold called a priest in some place in Highbury. And he said, you, there's no process. You either are or you're not, right? 
And so I, I railed against religion. But but the, I mentioned the trees today. I don't. I'm not religious, but I definitely believe in a higher power, right? So I'm looking at that tree. I'm not making that sway. You're not making that tree sway. There's some force greater than both of us. And whether you just call it the wind or mother nature, there's something causing that that's not you and me. So I'm very open-minded about there is a force out there that's bigger than me. That's what I'm saying. And I never used to think, I used to think it was all me. (laughs) Do you find that daunting or do you find that... No, I healing or as I get older, like I'm 53 now. And as you get into your fifties, I talk about this with my wife, you start feeling immortality a bit more. Right. And I actually find that I hope there is, I, I would call myself an agnostic, right? I, I I'd like to believe in a God. I don't know whether there is one, but I'm not an atheist. It's not that I don't believe I'd like to be, I'm a positive agnostic. I want to believe and I think I'm getting more and more positive. I really want there to be something more than this. <laughs> and yeah. I sense that there probably is. I sense that there probably is. I mean, that's, that can be, I find that a lot with guests, you know, saying spiritual, yes, religious, no. You know, and it's just like maybe not sort of follow a particular confine or a particular strategy, yeah. if you like, but certainly an overall overarching, yeah, no problem. I'm, I'll say yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, at the end of the day, it's funny, you know, when I lived in Australia, I I don't want to get too deep into the crisis that I had around alcohol and stuff, but suffice it to say, I stopped drinking, right? And I had to, I went through a a really horrendous rock bottom in 2009. And and coming out of that, I met met a very, you know, somebody I cherish to the day I die, and he was an abbot, right? That there is a... um, there is a monastery north of Perth on the west coast of Australia called New Norcia, right? Its name is New Norcia, and it was built in the 1800s by Franciscan, I think Franciscan monks who came to Australia. And this place is two hours north of Perth. This is in the middle of nowhere, right? This is like middle of nowhere. And they built this amazing place called New Norcia and uh, modeled on somewhere in Italy. And as part of my kind of recuperation and getting my life back together, I met Abbot John, right? Who's the abbot there of these monks. And I became a friend of his and we've kept in touch, not so much lately. And John, John Herbert is his name. Um, he, he used to be a chef in, in, in Melbourne. And, and I got to know him very well. And we, I went up there three or four times and, um, and he told me about his life and his struggles and struggles with identity and sexuality and all that sort of stuff. And yet this man became the abbot, right, of this very famous monastery. And um, and he would allow some of the monks to smoke cigars and to drink and not drink to excess. And I used to question him on this and say, how can you as abbot, an abbot allow all this kind of frivolity and stuff? And his answer was, from, from at the time, right, he could be different now. And I hope it's okay talking about this, but his answer was that for him, it was about spirituality, not religion, which might sound strange from an abbot of a monastery, a very reputable one. And and I asked him what the difference was. And he said, religion is is about finding a finite answer, whereas spirituality, you don't ever want to find that answer. It's about a constant search, you know, and I love that. I love that. That's the best way of describing it. And every day is different. Every talk is different. I, I, I didn't rehearse for this conversation with you. Normally, I have a few notes around. I had this sense 
I didn't even know how long this was going to be. I just, this is actually the first time, Pete, I can say that, that I've done no rehearsal. I, I don't mean to offend you by this. I, I want you kind of to feel good about this. No rehearsal. I didn't plan this. I just, and I think this is a sign that I'm I'm on my spiritual journey. I just feel at ease. And I felt there was something um, assuring about you, you know, from a, from a presence and from a companion perspective for this time. So um, I'm, I'm going off, I'm going off tangent here, but that's what spirituality is for me. It's that, open-mindedness and just following your instinct and critically doing no harm to anybody else, right? We have no right to hurt anybody else. Um, and if you follow that practice, I think you can't really go wrong. Willingness, open-mindedness, and honesty, and above all else, honesty. Honesty to yourself as well. Do you see a connection in, in between, you know, and we talked about sort of intuition and you know, spirituality. I mean, is there a crossover there, do you think? Or is there a, is there a marrying of them? I've never thought of that before. I, I guess the way to answer for me would be, um, I, I think for me, I, I have no problem now saying that I'm spiritual. Right? I, I, I've already said I'm in a spiritual program. And so for me, it's about, I don't know whether it's about intuition, but it's definitely about acceptance, self-acceptance. And maybe that is intuition. Maybe that is the intuition, you know, that, that by saying it to you and, and, you know, the audience is going to see this. I have no problem. Like I've got, I, I, I'm a human being, right, who is flaws and faults. And every day I make mistakes. Every day to a greater or lesser extent, I'm dishonest because I'm a human being, right? Um, I'm completely broken from, you know, I'm not talking completely broken, but we're all broken to a greater or lesser extent because we're flawed human beings. And so just get on with it, right? We're nobody, and this is really important, like nobody is asked to come onto this planet. You and I did not ask to be born, right? Nobody asked to be born. Nobody gives us any blueprint or roadmap. We're just kind of, for want of a better expression, placed on this planet. And we're all just like pieces of balsa wood on a big ocean. We're just trying to find a direction. And some people get it right. Some people get it wrong. Some people get notions and ego and, and chase wealth and whether you want to call it false gods or not. There's nothing wrong with, by the way, spirituality doesn't say you can't be rich. There's nothing wrong with it. It's your reaction to life, you know? So, um, yeah, for me, it's about acceptance. But I think your yeah, intuition is, is um, probably a big part of it as well. I hadn't yeah. thought of it. I hadn't thought of it like that. I was just curious because you used the word awareness, you know, and sort of being sort of aware of what's going on and through your teenage years and all that. And yeah, I was wondering if through life experience, through one thing, it actually evolves into an awareness of something more. I, it definitely awareness is a big thing. And I, I, I coach around self and situational awareness. And for me, actually, along with resilience and assertiveness and influencing, I think, I think self and situational awareness are probably, if you're going to say there are any keys to coping in life, it's self and situational awareness. So self-awareness is having a sense of who you are, what you stand for, where you've been, what you should and could be doing. It's that alignment thing. And then, but, but critically equally important is situational awareness, having a sense of where you are in the world as I said, reading the room and like, I'm never going to be, I, I, I'm not going to be Marshall Goldsmith. I'm not going to be the world's, well, I may, I may actually, I, I correct myself there. I could be the world's leading thinker in growth. Right. But I don't strive for that today. Um, conversely, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with where I am and 
I think that, that really is the key, is that self and situational awareness, is that as long as you're comfortable with where you are right now, that, that, that acceptance thing is a wonderful thing. Not striving or constantly thinking, what are my neighbors doing on my, you know, getting online and thinking, oh my God, all these other coaches, consultants, they're doing way more than me. That's just self-torture. So it's self and situational awareness feeding into acceptance. That's really, really important. And you talked about going into, you know, your 50s. I mean, uh, have you any concept of why you're here on this earth? Is there, have you any ideas around that? Well, I don't know. I don't know why humans are on. I don't know, right? I don't know. But I'm getting a stronger sense that I said it. I've said them both before. I do think strongly, and I never used to think this way, that we're actually here for each other. We're not here for ourselves, right? I don't know how I can expand on that. It's kind of That's kind of an intuition thing, right? I do think we're here for each other, right? And I don't think it's just, I don't think it's just, visceral primeval we're here to procreate i think it's something something more than that right that's the first thing um i think that's that's number one and the second thing then is i, I do think I, I do think we're here to um we are it's a bit like the old mars advert you know work rest and play right i do think we are here we, I, you know the whole the old religious ways of you know, particularly the Catholic church, which I can talk about because I'm from the Catholic church of, you know, you know, if you don't do this, you'll be punished and you go to hell. I don't believe I personally, I don't, I'm not criticizing anybody who does believe that. I don't believe that stuff. When we're, I do believe that we're here to enjoy as much as we can of life. Right. So work. So yes, we do need to work, but we also need to rest and we need to play. You know, I think Mars got it kind of right. Work, rest and play. Um, and then bringing it back to me, you know, I, why I'm here, I've had that kind of epiphany in the last year. I'm here. My purpose, as I said, is to, is to pick up as much knowledge, is to distill it, create training programs, coaching programs. And I'm, you know, I'm privileged to do that with business schools and companies and, and it's kind of going very well and writing books and articles and stuff. And then I love making I guess this is really important, Pete, is I love making what people think are complicated things, right? So I've written a book on contract law. I've written books about deal making, which most people would never think, why would you write something like that? I love doing that. And I like making it simple that anybody can read and understand. So that's my purpose, getting complicated things, um, simplifying them, and then inspiring others that they can go off and do it. That's my per personal purpose. But I think humankind, I think our main purpose is to be here for each other and to enjoy every single moment we can. Uh, anything deeper than that, I have no idea how big the universe is, what, what it's all about really, but I think that's the point. I don't think we're meant to. I don't think... And I hope we don't ever find the end of the universe. That would be pretty disappointing. That's like Abbot John said, you know, spirituality is about not finding the end. I hope, I hope, you know, these movies like Interstellar and all these movies I love, I hope we never actually do find an end to this. That would be, don't you think that would be disappointing? <laughs> if we find that infinity is not actually infinity, maybe it won't be disappointing. <laughs> well, be careful because they talk about the conscious mind not hearing the negative word. So it's like you're actually hoping to find the end of the world. So no, the end no. of the universe. No, actually I'm not. I, honestly, I'm not. But I hadn't thought of it like that as well. <laughs> just yeah, just watch the reverse negative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, I, I'm really struck by your language is super kinesthetic, really, really kinesthetic, which is great. And also, you a lot of eye language, so there's no 
there's no mix. So uh, typically with the language, you know, I'd hear a lot of, you know, I or referring to yourself in the third person or myself or whatever. Yeah. But you are really clean in your language, which shows to me a lot of clarity. Thanks. And that actually means a lot to me because it's funny you should say that because when I was going back to childhood, that actually means a huge amount to me. When I was back to childhood, I used to suffer from, and I don't know whether anybody's heard of this, there's a, there's a condition called acataphasia, A-C-A-T-A-P-H-A-S-I-A, I think, acataphasia. I think that's what it is. And and so the way that used to play out as a youngster, I, I've got a... F- my brain is quick, right? I think a lot and I think deeply and I'm always thinking about the next thing. But as a kid, because my brain was, my brain was moving faster than my lips could move. So I would say something and I would stutter or I wouldn't get the words out correctly. And I I self-diagnosed myself. I looked into this thing and it's because my brain was always racing ahead. Doesn't, it's nothing to do with intellect. It just means a busy head, right? There's a bit of intellect there. And, and, and so so I've actually trained myself over the years and it's in the last couple of years I've done radio and podcasts from a language perspective. I work on it, but I guess the biggest underpinning for what you said is that I just love what I'm doing now, what I do now. And it just, and when I listen back to myself on radio and podcasts, I realize I hadn't thought of it as I haven't used that word kinesthetic, but yeah, I, I people have said to me, you sound really enthusiastic you, you know, we, you know, one person, when I interviewed them, one of the, I won't mention who it was, one of these global thought leaders afterwards said, I love your interview, Simon, because what you do is you bring out most interviewers and, and you're good at, you're very good at this as well. Most interviewers just ask questions, but you don't get the sense they're really that interested. Whereas with you, because I can, because you're genuinely interested, Simon, you make me feel and enthusiastic you make me feel enthusiastic and that's communication, you know, and, and, and I love that, you know, and I, so for, for that kid who couldn't talk and he used to stutter and stuff, it's lovely to hear that. I'm going to, I'm going to look up the word kinesthetic now, cause I'm not sure what it means. So uh, that's my treat for after this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, just, well, I'll, I'll sort of burst the bubble slightly. I mean, it, it's that, but it is, it's the, it's a very doing language which is, you know, when, when people talk, so typically we, we, so you get a lot of visual language. I see, you know, when someone says, I see, you know, and this is how you learn. So yeah. you show them how to learn. You get kinesthetic is show me how it's done physically sit with me. Yeah, so yeah. it's all, all doing language. You know, i you know, I feel this. So it's, it's very, you know, touchy sensitive. Um, but I also tend to find when people are talking about connection to themselves, connection to the universe, that's where I found sort of, you know, a lot of interviews in that actually, you know, when people are going through the spiritual phase actually is where they collapse the gap and that's the gap yeah. between their true self, if you like, and who they projected themselves to be. Okay. And you think I do that sooner? Well, I, I think, I think you're actually, you're doing it naturally now, whether that's because the collapse, the gap has collapsed and it is, you're running your true self. Whereas Sometimes when you hear people and go on, you know, and typically, I, I didn't obviously know you 10, 15 years ago, but yeah, a lot of ego in there. It's, you know, I, I like to yeah. do drive this car and, you know, myself, I agree. We do oh, this, I agree. And, you know, um, and the only way you can get the higher, get closer to the true self is through addiction, addictive type of products. Yeah. Whereas I, that's, if you that, get a that's, spiritual high, it, it actually closes the gap as well. That's a great point. Right. And I think you're right. I think that does apply to me, but the, the interesting thing 
The other interesting thing is about boundaries, right? So I, I think I've always been like this, right? So I've always, I've always had this natural tendency to be kinesthetic, right? And I'm still going to look up that word because I don't really, but I've always had this natural tendency. But, but this is really important. And I think there are people out there who I've, I, I coach some of them. So as a kid or as a teenager, or as a young man, I would be this kind of um, this viscerally connected, right, in my language. And I think that would either scare some people who weren't ready for it, particularly in the corporate world. So I think that's probably why I wasn't very political in companies, right? I would just say what I thought, right? And that doesn't work in companies when you got to just be political, right? That's the first side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that um, there are just there are some people who take advantage of that, right? And so I used to be very, very trusting with it, you know, extremely trusting. I've been very trusting all my life, and you can then to be taken advantage of, right? And um, and I have in business, and so. So I think I've always been this way, but I think I'm now aware of it because of the spiritual journey I've been on. And I'm also critically very careful about it as well. So uh, now I know potentially seven and a half billion people could watch this chat online and I hope they can for, for both of us. Right. So, but that's fine. Right. But, 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 but I don't, I'm careful about how far I go down certain subjects with some people, because there are some people who do take advantage. So again, I think that's, I think the first part is that spiritual acceptance. I think this is the way I've always been anyway, spiritual acceptance and also an awareness of the boundaries as well. Those three parts are critically important. This sounds like it's come easy. It's been a 15-year journey, Peter. <laughs> no, listen, I, I, I can see that, you know, and I get that. It's that, you know, it's like silence or, or being present or all that. It's, it's actually ridiculously hard, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, you mentioned funnily like an iPhone there. It's actually... The simpler it is, the harder it is to design or to get right, you know, yeah. because of its pureness, its simplicity of, yeah. as opposed to, you know, we could design something with 50 million buttons and all the rest. It'd be super yeah. right, but yeah. the problem is it's not as, as tangible as practical. And the funny thing is, it's kind of going off subject a little bit, but I went through a form of therapy a couple of years ago with a friend of mine who we went into business with for a while, and he was trained in this therapy because I'm very curious about all this sort of stuff. And it's called brief subjective emotive therapy. And there's a doctor in Dublin called Dr. Pradeep Chabba who Chadda, who brings Eastern and Western theories to bear. And, um, uh, and so I went through this with somebody here in, in Wicklow and really the premise of this, if you, the way to describe this is, you know, there's all sorts of there's cognitive behavioral therapy and all these kind of therapies out there, but, but what I love about this particular type, and he, he, this is Dr. Pradeep Chadder's words. I don't, don't, I don't know whether they're industry recognized. Brief subjective emotive therapy. The way to describe it is, you know, those water bottles that you take to a gym, right? And if you go to a gym, this is the uh, analogy, and that water bottle is full of water, right? There's no gap at the top, right? That's a bit like when somebody comes for brief subjective emotive therapy, which is a bit like me, even two years ago. Instead of the water being in that bottle, that bottle was full of all my fears, anxieties, busy head. I, I never gave myself an opportunity to stop and just relax. And so it was full, right? I was busy, right? I'm too busy, right? And sometimes it was driving me demented. And the premise of that therapy is that over a period of time through silent meditation, and 
I used to go walking in the woods in Wicklow every Wednesday morning for half an hour in silence with my friend, complete silence, right? Uh, and at the end of that process, the, the water level is down, right? So then once that water level is down, then you can really work on yourself, right? And, and I have to find that, I, I have to say that those, that those 12, it was about 15 walks on a, on a Wednesday morning. The first three or four was really really alarming for me because because all I could hear for the first for, for the entire half an hour was my head my head was arguing with itself is this guy going to kill me am I mad this is ridiculous this is such a waste of time all this stuff was going on in my head and yet by the end of the la end of the sessions all of that had disappeared I hadn't even consciously realized it it just as it disappeared and I noticed every time I walked I could hear twigs uh, twigs breaking under my feet I didn't hear those the first half a dozen times. So it's a, it's a movement into out of your mind into your presence, you know, and I don't articulate the language of a meditation guru, right? Cause I have a bad memory for all this sort of stuff. So I hope this makes sense, but it's, it's, I said it before, you know, the human brain and I've been through this myself, you know, I've sobbed my eyes out for two weeks, nonstop back in 2009 when I was in a crisis so I know what it's like to be very close to death, suicide or self-destruction. Uh, and that's nearly always caused by what's going up in here, right? It's the, it's the human brain that does it, right? Uh, and then conversely, it's, it can be, you know, your best friend as well. So I'm very aware of that, the delicate balance in here. Uh, and we, we just need to be mindful, excuse the pun, of the power of our brains. And Eckhart Tolle talks about it really well in The Power of Now. And I use again this in my coaching programs. I say that if you're going to, if you're going, if you need to drill a hole in, <laughs> it's a phenomenal book. I read that first time in 12 years ago and I thought it was a load of nonsense. And then I took it on holiday a year ago, literally my last holiday, Morocco, February last year. We arrived back just before the pandemic. And, and I literally went through every page and I underlined lined it. It's an amazing book. And one of the, the analogies he uses, I don't know whether it's directly in that book. I think it is, is he talks about a drill. I think it is. If you need to drill a hole in the wall, what do you do? You go to the shed, you get a drill, you drill a hole in the wall, you fill the holes, you put the drill back in the shed and that's that. And that's how you could, should kind of use your mind. Use your mind like a, and I say this to when I coach from this moment on, try and use your mind like a power tool, right? When you need to do a piece of work like this, when you need to focus, switch it on and be really focused. And when you don't need to work, switch it off, put it away and relax, have a coffee or whatever. Because the reason for that is so many humans today are in this constant low-grade anxiety, constant low-grade anxiety, social media and news. And, and, and a lot of that is just self, it's self, you know, it's self-destruction. Just switch that brain off. It's easier said than done though, but that's something I've really worked at. Because um, if you want, you can listen to those voices in your head 24-7, you know? So you've got to really work at this stuff. And I don't want to make this sound trite and easy. It's not. It's taken me 15 years. But um, if anybody's watching this, you know, and, and, and gets inspiration from this, it, it is possible to do this, you know? <laughs> but you have to really want and need it, you know? I'm getting quite – I'm getting to the borderline of getting a bit emotional, which yeah. is important. Yeah. 
is there a connection and i don't want to connect too many dots here but I, was there a connection between you exiting the corporate world and your state of mind yep 100 percent uh i i always felt kind of inadequate would be the word in the corporate world right and and i also had horrendous imposter syndrome i was the first person in my family to go to university and uh, I got very good results uh, at school and university, but I always felt inadequate. I always felt like, I'll never forget the very first day as a trainee solicitor, September the 5th or the 6th, 1993, sitting on a bench outside St. Paul's Cathedral in Dublin with my best friend, Adrian, from school. And I was about to start work with one of the biggest five law firms on planet Earth, right? Very prestigious law firm. That's where I got articles because I've got a good brain, Right. And I remember sitting there saying to him, Adrian, one day I'm going to be found out, right? I, I, I'm going to be found out. And, and so I always, in the corporate world, I always felt like that wasn't me. I, I can't really put my finger on it, that I was acting, I was pretending. I, I wasn't, there, 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 again, I talk when I coach, there are, there are always, for me, there's been two versions of me. There's the LinkedIn version, which is the clenched buttock, you know, very corporate kind of version. And then there is the, you can't see me, but I'm wearing shorts here, right? There's the very relaxed, chilled, a little bit slobby Simon, right? And this is me, right? And 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 that's there's no coincidence. I've grown a beard in lockdown because this is me. I love it, right? And so it's funny when I finished as a, as a practicing solicitor here in Ireland in 19, the end of 19, December 99. This might sound mad, right? I, I literally destroyed all my books. I threw them all away and I literally rolled in the back garden. We lived in Fox Rock, South Dublin, in the mud, in my suits. And I threw the suits away. <laughs> so for me, it's kind of freedom not being in that corporate world. And it's funny, you know, I work, I'm now a coach and consultant. I go into companies and and I won't mention any names, but just in the last couple of weeks, I'm I'm, I'm talking about working with one company here as a consultant. So I don't have to deal with all that politics in there. I just go in and do the work and come up. And the head of VP, the, the head of HR, you know, broke into tears or broke down into tears on the phone with me, telling me what was going on in that business. And for a split second, I had that gut feeling in my stomach that I used to have when I used to go into corporates, right? And I really felt for her. And and so yeah, I think you're right. It's, this is the way I I, I love do it. Basically, I'm unemployable. I'm a coach, consultant, writer, mentor, a bit academic, and I love it. You know, I, 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 maybe it's part of me. I just don't like being pigeonholed as an employee. <laughs> That's part of it on the service level. The other thing is I just love creating stuff and disrupting a bit. And in the corporate world, it's hard to do that. That's just my opinion. Just interesting there, you know, and you were saying about that, that that particular person you were talking to. Do you find people are opening up to you more? Do you find you're getting into random deep conversations? Yeah, definitely. And part of that is I wasn't ready to notice them, right? Because when you're so self-centered and so self-obsessed, you're not listening to this stuff. You're not aware. You're not watching out for it. But it... And it's interesting, particularly this last year, you know, my, for example, you know, my LinkedIn followers have quadrupled and, and, you know, and I'm getting some accolades and blah, blah, blah. And so I'm getting noticed more, right? One of the downsides is you get a lot of people trying to flog your stuff. Um, but one of the upsides is that, and it's funny, you know, human beings are kind of, it's funny, you know, before I started getting traction a year ago, 
with followers and accolades and stuff, when I would send a message to somebody on LinkedIn, they would invariably, maybe even you, right, a year ago, they would come back and say, who are you kind of thing? Why are you bothering me? Now I get people come to me and say, oh, you know, you know, you're so amazing. Do you mind if I connect with you, right? And the reason I'm telling you that is not in any way around ego and stuff, because you have to keep that. Once that ego starts poking through, right, again, that's self-destructive. The reason I'm saying that is that um, the, the responsibility comes with this stuff. I think that's the key point that I want to make. It is that once you have that awakening, and for me, it's taken 15 years you, you have to constantly say to yourself, why am I doing this? Am I doing this out of ego or am I doing this because I just want to share, right? And, and I, I don't always get it right. And sometimes when I post on LinkedIn, I can feel the ego poking through. And then my subconscious says, no, Simon, pull back a bit. Vulnerability is definitely more powerful than ego. I wish some of our political leaders would accept that, but it's definitely more enduring and powerful and cherishable than ego. It's funny you mention that because it was a question I'd asked actually one of a social media person recently and saying, you know, where does ego start and stop when it comes to social media? And they were sort of saying, when you're, when you're hitting the post button, what's your expectation? And yeah. if it is an expectation of a like and an endorphin hit and all the rest, well, that is ego. Yeah. If it is that I could actually post this and never look back at this again, hoping that it maybe serves the right person, it gets the right thing, but needing yeah. no feedback, well, then that's that's pure service. It's funny you should say that because I posted something less than two weeks ago on LinkedIn, so you can fi find it quite easily. And a social media guy who helps me put my images together superimposed my head on Superman's body, you know, with the S and the big muscles and stuff. And I've had that image for a year, right? And I'll share this. And, and two weeks ago, because I'm constantly posting all the time, I thought, do I post this, right? Do I post this? And I went through this internal journey and I thought, you know, I want to post this image. And then I thought, well, like, is it, well, I just look like a, a self-obsessed big headed knob if I post an image of me superimposed Superman. So I went through this process internally and then I thought, hang about, if I just put I-M-O-N, if I superimpose I-M-O-N after the S, right? So it's Simon, right? And post it, and I and I craft the message in such a way that it makes it look like I'm self-deprecating, right? That I'm I, I've got humor about me, right? That 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 and and I and I and, and it worked, right? Because I honestly, my honest intent was not to show off. My honest intent was for people to say, now, now there's a fine line because I want because there is a, an element of ego. I want people to see this, right? So there's an element, there's an ounce of ego, but I also when I, when people see it, I want them to think. Ah, he, he's he's confident with himself now. He's reached a certain place, but he's still not taking him that himself that seriously. And the first piece of feedback I got from a friend was, "Wow, Simon, I'm surprised you did that, but good on you because clearly you could say you could see you were putting yourself down." So that was a journey of that was a real breakthrough for me because not, not I wouldn't normally go that far and post something like that. And in the past, if I had, it would have just been pure ego. But you have to constantly watch this stuff. It's a it's a battle. It's a it's a challenge, rather. It's a challenge. It is. It is funny, isn't it? You know, it's that, it's that balance with the outside world, that balance with yourself, yeah, your, your true self. You know, and there's all these things we're sort of measuring up. And I know, I know. Sometimes you can sometimes you can worry too much, and 
it's funny, you know, when, I mean, I won't go into the details, but when I left Australia four years ago, I was involved in a business failure and I lost a lot of money. And for about a year and a half, and this is something I talk a lot about when I train and coach, you know, that, that a lot of people have imposter syndrome and a lot of people feel they're being bullied, right? And for about a year and a half, I used to be fearful of answering the post for fear of getting, you know, nasty letters and stuff from Australia. It was all mad, right? Because I'd, I'd done nothing wrong. Auditors had signed off and everything was fine. Blah, blah, blah. Not, somebody else had done all the issues. But for a year and a half, I had this. And I also hid on social media. I didn't even, I wasn't even on Twitter, on Instagram until two years ago. I hid, right? And, and yet today, you know, and it was a year ago as well, January last year, uh, there's, I'm on a website called mindsetandmindfulness.com. I, I co-established this with Justin Caffrey, who's the guy who took me meditation, a wonderful man. And, uh, and I started, it was only a year ago that I started writing publicly about some of the journey I've been on around imposter syndrome and anxiety and alcohol and stuff. And again there, I agonized for about a week. God, if I post this, am I going to be bullied? Are the big corporates going to preclude me from working with them? Nothing negative as touching wood has ever happened. And so it's made me realize, and I've looked into this more and more, that so many of us feel that we're being bullied, right? And this is a big issue, right? Um, and yet, nine, as I said before, most people aren't bullying you. Most people have not the remotest concern about bullying you. They're just minding themselves. Most people are just finding a way in their own life. And sometimes the friction brings people together and it might feel like you're being bullied, but people are just minding themselves. Now there are bullies out there and you have to be careful and you need that self-awareness, but yeah, I've been on a big journey and I meet so many people who feel like they're being bullied and victimized. And, and, and I think you do need to differentiate that with the fact that yes, we are going to lock horns with people. We are going to brush against people sometimes and it's how you deal with it. That was a long-winded way of describing that. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it does. It, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of, I suppose, as well, that, you know, from the ego's perspective, well, first of all, I suppose, how do you tell how do you tell what your truth is? Because you talked about, the, you know, the mind, you know, bringing it out. It's a drill. Use yeah. it, set it to work, put it back away again, That the mind. But also being understanding that, you know the what I the way I see it, I suppose, is that the ego is this this crazy monkey that drives the mind. It's the the, the crazy mm -hmm. bus driver. Yeah. But you also got to accept that that's not necessarily the truth. So the voice in your head is not necessarily the truth. Yeah. Although it's in your head and it has a direct narrative, it also use knows the exact language to to bully you. Yeah. So an internal bully, it's kind of going, yeah, you're crap, you're this, you're that, and it used yeah. perfect language because it knows exactly how to hit you. So a bully, exactly. just, you know, you, you bully yourself, really. It's, it's bizarre. You do bully yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and, that, and that was part of that brief subjective emotive therapy that I went through. And the, basically, to cut a long story short, you know, what I would do is I would go back in kind of eyes closed meditation for weeks on end, did this for about, you know, six months, go back to in incidents in the past, mainly starting from childhood, right? and then go back and then come forward and then go back and come forward. Various incidents where you, where I felt that I had failed or been bullied or I clashed or I had a, a relationship breakdown or a business breakdown. And I would say 95% of those incidences, I fell into the trap. It was me not uh, me, people, me being people pleasing, me, me not putting up boundaries, 
me allowing my head to talk myself into relationships and situations that I just didn't, didn't need to. Whereas today, and this is really important, it, for nearly a year now, I've not fallen out with any other human being. I can confidently say that. I can swear that on the Holy Bible. And, that's, and I think that's because... About a year ago, I came up with this thing, and I, and I use three words now. Before I collaborate with anybody, whether it's business or whatever, I say to myself now three things. A, do I like this person? So all three things have to be satisfied. A, do I like them? And B, do I respect them? So they have to be good. And also C, do I trust them, right? And the thing about trust is we don't, it's very hard to define what trust is, isn't it? It's very hard. I actually write down in the sentence what trust is, but we all feel in our gut what mis- lack of trust is, right? And so I force myself to go through all those. And the reason I do that, and, and again, I talk about this a lot, is that in the past, my ego would say, Simon, overlook the trust thing because you like them and respect them. They'll make you loads of money, so work with them, Right. I stopped myself from doing that now, and I and 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 I don't think it's a coincidence that, I, I you know I I've had this more serene, peaceful life for a year, and and also I do think that people, and again, there's responsibility with what I'm saying. When people see you on a, and I can see it in you as well, right? When people see that you are on a journey of, uh, you, without in any way talking ego here, that you've had an awakening or you're having an awakening, you're on a journey of acceptance and awareness. People are the right people who are ready are drawn to that, right? They're drawn to that, right? And uh, and that's a wonderful thing. But again, you've always got to self-calibrate. Am I heading into veering into ego when I'm even saying this, right? So it's a constant journey of calibration, which is a lovely thing because when you're not aware, you don't even think about this calibration stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing that yeah, the actual sort of. The whole process, really. Uh, but I'm struck as well. I mean, there's sort of the polarities and, and you know, to, God, to use an over an overused word at the moment, you know, it is, it is a pivoting polarity. I mean, you, you yeah. talked about going from noisy to quiet. You talked about complex to simple, you know, and, and really loud to quiet and, and how it's like someone slammed the end of the table and suddenly the whole thing's gone upside down, right? But yeah. you're actually living in the positive power as opposed to feeding off the, the sort of negative away from energy. So it's yeah. a, a massive shift. It is, and and I'm not going to go into details, but you know, you, you know, in Star Wars they talk about the, you know the dark side and the light side, right? That exists in all of us. And in my darkest moment in 2009, I experienced something that I never want. I experienced almost like a a dark force in my sternum, right, in my in my chest, right, and because I was in such a terrible place, um, psychologically, spiritually, mentally, and. And I do think that there are negative forces, and I'm not an expert here, but I do think there are negative forces out there, whatever you want to call them, evil, darkness, whatever you want to call it, that feed off certain people when they're vulnerable, particularly when they're vulnerable. And 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 I'm not a guru in this, and I'm not, you know, I'm not one of these mad in my head, one of these mad people who overstates this stuff. But I do think we have to be careful about the dark side. It exists out there. Like when you think about it, Pete, we all have, every human has the capacity, as long as they're adult, as long as they're not, you know, infants, we all have the capacity to kill or to love, right? It's in all of us. We all have a light and a dark side. And I went on this training program 20 years ago, this executive thing, and the premise, it was run by Richard Olivier, Sir Lawrence Olivier's son, and a leading emotional intelligence guy, and I probably wasn't ready for it at the time, but the premise of this, it was a weeks-long course, 
and the premise of this was Shakespeare's Henry V play, which I, you know, I'm not, I'm not academic, I'm not into literature particularly, but I, I found out that this was a young king. So these messages go back, you know, 500 years and back to when humans started. This was a young king who was about to go into battle the following day. And the story is about the battle that he had in his head, right? So on the one hand, he was swagger and ego and machismo and he wanted to kill people. On the other hand, he was terrified and fearful like a little baby. And the premises of that program, and I guess to sum this whole thing up is that you can only be a truly effective leader and I think this is really important in any aspect, whether it's religious, spiritual, business, if you know yourself as much as you possibly can, and that's the dark part of you and the light part of you. If you, if you, if you ignore the dark part of you, which we all have, or shun it or put it off or don't deal with triggers or fears, eventually they will come back. And so I think that's really, really important. That's really important. Can I ask if you don't mind, I mean, alcohol for you was that to turn the volume up or turn the volume down or something else altogether so, so what so what do you mean so did alcohol enhance for, stuff or yeah it was for some it's to drown out the noise and to sort of give them a bit of reprieve and a bit of respite from the noise and from everything else for others it's just kind of going i need something to you know sort of almost okay, lift me okay now that's, that's a good question so for me alcohol that's a great question. I mean, for me, I, I mean, I drank, you know, I just drank a lot, right, uh, as, as a, a lot of people do. For me, I tended to enjoy alcohol more or, 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 or lean on alcohol more. Funny enough, not when I was down, right? I would drink when I was down. But when I felt up, elated about something, I used to like it. It was like rocket fuel. It used to bring me even further up, right? And, and like, for example, I, I studied at my law degree Every night I would have two, maybe three cans of Carlsberg Special Brew. I mean, that's 9% strong beer, right? And I would do that, and I would almost play Russian roulette with my mind, and I'd say, right, because, you know, when you start getting a bit fuzzy and a bit woozy in your head, right, with alcohol, for me, I would fight through that, and I'd actually play Russian roulette, and it would, and I would actually find my brain would be sharper, right, as a result. Now, after time, that doesn't work, and it gets you, right? <laughs> And so I use, I often say that alcohol for me was like rocket fuel. It allowed me to achieve amazing things, right? For a long time. But after a while, it, it does, if you are addictive like I am, it just drags you down. It just, you can't not be dragged down. So yeah, that was my journey. <laughs> mm. Very quick one. What's a guilty pleasure for you now? Say that again. What's a guilty pleasure for you now? You can take out the guilt if you want. A guilty pleasure, uh, probably food. Like, I mean, I love food because uh, I don't drink, I don't smoke. Uh, and so, yeah, food, I love food. I have to be very careful. Uh, <laughs> I'm a bit like my cat. I could just just eat. So, uh, What's your go-to? What's, your, what's the sort of right up there for you? With the food? Uh, cheese. I'd be a cheeseaholic, definitely. <laughs> also, coffee as well. I have to say, coffee, I, I, I drink coffee by the, you know, I don't have small cups of coffee. I have big cups of coffee, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> I get you. You can't see my cup, but yeah, yeah, the bigger the better. Uh, yeah, no, um, for, me, for me, it's consumption. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to be respectful of time here. So tell us, I mean, Simon, if, you know, we're talking about your fire in the belly in one or two words, what would that be? 
I guess it's, you know, I mentioned, you know, matching confidence with capability. For me, it's, you know, I, I have a strong desire just to keep doing what I'm doing now. You know, I can see I'm on the right journey and I seem to be, you know, for example, you know, I'm working with an executive from India coaching her. I'm working with a Syrian woman who lives in Paris coaching her. These are people who have connected with me online, right? And many other people. Mm. And for me, it's, when at the end of the process they say, "Wow, that was that was not life changing, but that was like really profound." Thanks so much. That's the fire in my belly to see mm. when people think at the start of the journey, all this stuff around leadership, business, brand, mindset, personal brand is for other people, and at the end of the process they say, "Wow, I can really apply this to me, and it's not as difficult as I assumed." Right? And you've spoken in a nice, simple, step by step terms. That's the fire in my belly. If I could keep doing that for the rest of my life and getting paid reasonable, not huge sums, that would be a dream. Mm. That was great. Fair play, yeah. So tell us, where can people reach out to you, follow you, track you, hunt you down, stalk you, any of the above? Uh, well, mainly LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn all the time. So Simon Haig on LinkedIn or through my website, simonhaig.com. Um, uh, I'm on Twitter as well. But yeah, mainly LinkedIn or through the website. And email address is simon at simonhaig.com. Brilliant. Final message you'd like to leave with people? I, I think I think just the three words, you know, if you have any doubt about interacting people, just think, you know, do I like this person? Do I respect them? And And do I respect them? And do I trust them? And I, I guess the final, final thing is Eckhart Tolle, I think, talks about if, if, if you're facing a situation in life, right, you have three choices and they're the three A's. You either accept, amend, or avoid. So you either accept what you're dealing with, you either try and change it, but if you can't accept or change it, you leave. And that takes, for me, a lot of pressure away. Accept, amend, or avoid. And it simplifies life. It's nice and simple, but it's your choice then. <laughs> Simon, it's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time and uh, hopefully we'll get talking again in the future. Thank you. I hope so. That was great. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without our great guests taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that and then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon and it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.